Well, welcome to the August uh, meeting of the Silicon Valley Speechwriters Roundtable. And I'm very pleased today to welcome the uh, Cicero Award winner, Jeff Davenport, who works for Nancy Duarte at Duarte Incorporated here in Silicon Valley. And Jeff serves as the executive speaker coach and senior content developer at Duarte. And um, he uses his background as both a screenwriter and a professional public speaker to help clients communicate powerfully, persuasively by infusing story dynamism and empathy into their presentations. Whether he's coaching high-level executives or thought leaders taking the stage for conference keynotes uh, or commencement addresses, Jeff brings a thoughtful personal touch to his roles, tapping into speakers' personal passions and helping them create lasting connections with their audience. And as I said, he's the 2017 award winner in the public policy category for a speech someday as today, delivered by the billionaire banker Carlos Rodriguez Pastor in Lima, Peru. So, Jeff, welcome to uh, the Roundtable conference call. Thank you, Ian. I appreciate it. Uh, proud to be here. Yeah. Well, let's start by, you know, you've got a very varied background, and in fact, we really have three big buckets to cover. We've got speech writing, but of also of great interest to all writers is uh, screenwriting for television and movies, which you've done, as well as delivery coaching. But tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this world of communication. Yeah, I always tell people my resume is a dog's breakfast. It's got a little bit of everything in it. And, you know, uh, to this day, I kind of scratch my head and go, now, how did I end up here? I don't know if anybody else in the line has experienced something like that, but you only find the path once you look backwards and realize, wow, a lot of, a lot of elements in my life conspired to get me here. Uh, I think probably like everybody on the line, I grew up appreciating strong communication. Now, that doesn't mean as a kid I was listening to uh, Ronald Reagan speeches or tuning into NPR, but it, it means that I think – uh, even at an early age, I recognized I loved storytelling. Um, I think every kid loved watching television, watching movies. But after a while, I started investigating. Now, how were these things made? And uh, the penny dropped for me. I had a big realization when I realized, oh, someone's writing these things. Someone's actually sitting down and creating these things. My mom always tells the story that when I was a kid, I loved the Flintstones. Uh, it was an old, old cartoon, and I used to watch that. And one day I shook my head and I said, how did Fred and Barney memorize all those lines? And, it, you know, early on I started recognizing, okay, someone, someone is creating these things, and someone's, someone's sitting down and putting pen to paper and coming up with a way to communicate these ideas. So I started chasing that down more in college. Uh, I got into uh, radio, television, and film, doing a little more writing, a little more writing, and then went to grad school uh, out in California at USC to study screenwriting. Uh, at the same time, I was uh, getting some opportunities here and there to do public speaking, which uh, I'll tell anybody, I was a wallflower in high school. I was, I was joke, I was voted least likely to be remembered. I was a quiet, quiet kid, and speaking in front of a group of people sounded dreadful to me. But there I was having to do more and more public speaking, and not just public speaking, but I had to come up with the talk myself and write it. And so over the years, I you know, by trial and error, by hook or by crook, uh, maybe sometimes more failures than successes, I would try to figure out what's the most compelling way to communicate whatever idea it is that I have. And that in conjunction with the storytelling, with the screenwriting I did, uh, some TV movies, that sort of thing, over time it just added up and I started to 
uh, with a friend of mine, we would talk to executives who had to give big speeches and coach them on not only what to say but how to say it. And when that started to happen, I realized, wow, I have a, I have a surprising reservoir of public speaking, of putting together speeches that I can draw from to help them become, become better storytellers, better, better, better speakers. Yeah, yeah. And, and I see from LinkedIn, you've been, um, as I said in the introduction, uh, with Nancy Duarte's organization, Duarte Inc., for the last four years. What attracted you there, and, and what some of the highlights of, of working there? And maybe you can touch on the typical clients you work with. Sure. When my friend and I started doing this speaker coaching on our own, we, we looked at each other and said, boy, we need, to, we need to see what else is out there. And so we start doing research, and it doesn't take you long to do research on public speaking to come across Nancy's TED Talk. And to be honest, at that point, I had watched a number of talks about giving talks, and they were largely uninteresting. And I saw Nancy's, and there was something arresting about it. It wasn't just the content, but I, I, I just felt like something about her as a human being was very impressive. And so I chased that rabbit and went and, and learned more and more about what she was communicating uh, through her books and through her organization. Uh, so I, I became a Nan fan right away and would find myself saying some of the things that she had said, of course, giving credit to her uh, as we worked with executives. And then I was, at the time, I ended up working for an app company in Colorado, writing content for them. And it felt like there was something more for me to do. My wife happened to find the job listing on Nancy's webpage, on Duarte's webpage. And when I went there, I was a little stunned and thought, wow, this is a dream situation. And my wife read the job description, and she said, this job description is really weird. It's storytelling. It's almost screenwriting-ish, and it has to do with public speaking. And she basically said, this is your brand of weird. Jeff. And so I chased it down and ended up uh, getting to work uh, at Duarte. And it's been great. Uh, it's, a, it's a great place. I know everybody says that about their organization, but boy, you step on our, in our building and you feel it. We have clients tell us that all the time. Uh, when you ask what it's like, we have fantastic clients. We have small little clients where we get really close with them. And then we have great big clients, big giant corporations, and we get, you know, good high touch with those people as well. So we get great clients. Uh, we also have a truly fantastic culture. Uh, we talk at, about the Duarte Familia, that it is, it is familial through and through, that everyone cares about one another. I don't know that it's that often that you go into an agency, and one of the words you would describe about the agency is that wow, this feels like a really kind place. This feels like a really nurturing place. Uh, we are encouraged to try cool new things. And if we fail, uh, that's okay. We have a soft place to fall. The idea is that we're constantly trying to innovate when it comes to servicing our clients. So we're encouraged to try new things. So I love the culture. And there is a tremendous amount of great thinking that comes out of this place. I, I walk around and the ideas that are coming out for clients – the ideas that are continually being produced uh, by Nancy herself, uh, by Patty Sanchez, who is uh, the head of our strategy department. Uh, the two of them wrote a great book called Illuminate. I, there's so many of these great ideas come out, and I, I love being near people with great ideas. And I get to be encouraged to come up with my own little great ideas in that process. So 
working at Duarte is great. Uh, I've, I've, I've loved it. It's, again, great clients, great culture, but also a lot of great thinking. Yeah, well, I've been a client when I was working at HP and Cisco of, um, of Duarte's and visited, in fact, the original, well, not the original office maybe, but the office before the one you moved into now, which was hip and cool. And then I went to the new office, and it's a whole wall-to-wall, 200-plus people, I think, of creatively uh, involved with communication. So that's pretty powerful. And we'll get more into that in a second. You mentioned Illuminate, which is a fantastic book I've reviewed on my blog, as well as Resonate and uh, Slideology. But those are all books Nancy and, and Patty created, uh, the last one, Illuminate. But I wanted to switch gears for a second because the reason you came to my attention, and it's wonderful that we've got really three big buckets here. We'll get into screenwriting, delivery coaching as well. But you were a recipient of this award that David Murray, the Professional Speech Writers Association and the and the uh, vital speeches of the day, I think it's vsotd.org. If anybody's not familiar with it, you should certainly go there. Uh, the Cicero Award, named after the, the Roman uh, who was a, a well-known public speaker in his day and, and wrote lots of uh, seminal books on it, um, is the 2017 award for public policy because there's about 15 or 20 different categories. And you got the award as well as an honorable mention, I think, for two speeches. I, I believe they were, they're both by this Peruvian uh, banker, Carlos Rodriguez Pasta, Tell us, tell us a little about your work with Carlos on those speeches, and, and you know, let's get into the weeds about, you know, from when he first maybe approached you and the organization, and, and what was involved in creating those speeches. That people can find that speech online if you go to VSOTD and go to 2017. You'll find a PDF file of all of the speeches, and, and what is it? Page six is the winner. No, page three is the winner for the. Um, I'm mixing it up. Anyway, it's, it's in there. Here it is, page 43. <laughs> Looking at the wrong one. Is the your speech on Sunday is today. So can you give us some background on that and what was involved yeah. from the get-go? Happily. Uh, I will say it's funny, those awards, you know, it, there's my name on there, and that's that's a that's a falsity. You know, we, especially at Duarte, we work in teams, and we have a fantastic account person who ran that account, Paul Brown, and then we also had a great design team headed up by this guy, Ryan Orcutt. But by the way, when it comes to Duarte, we're all about uh, content, delivery, and design, and our designers are, my word, you, you can't hold a candle to these folks. They're, they're incredibly creative. And so what we ended up producing for Carlos uh, included design, included some delivery, but then uh, obviously content. So it was a whole team that was going at this. I, I can't, to be honest, I can't remember how Carlos came to us initially. Uh, Carlos is, I don't think it's any secret, he's a billionaire, but he is just the most kind and gracious man. He's, he's clearly very, very brilliant, uh, but he is just kind and gracious. And I've, I've always thought this is the kind of billionaire who needs to give billionaire lessons to all the other billionaires of the world. Uh, just a good man. Um, he's, he's someone who has amassed a fair amount of wealth for himself and is for his family, and yet is happy, only really happy, when he's doing something positive in the world, whether that's with his money or his influence. So he had initially come to us to do a, um, to help him with a commencement address he was doing for the the business school at Dartmouth. He was an alumna from uh, Dartmouth, and we ended up doing more and more work with him. 
this speech that, that won this uh, little award was, uh, it was given by Carlos to a large group of Peruvian influencers. These were business people. These were politicians. These were people who, you know, they had their hands on the tiller on which direction the nation of Peru was going to go into. And Carlos is a guy who just, he doesn't have a lot of patience for inactivity. He, he feels like it, he puts, he wants other people to feel the, the same healthy inward pressure he feels, which is, look, if you have influence, if you have means, it's up to you to do something good with it. And he's acted on that his whole uh, adult life. And so he had to give a speech to these Peruvian influencers, and he wanted to say, look, now's the time. Uh, something has to be done with our nation. Yes, we're on a good trajectory right now economically, but, boy, we have got to rethink things because this will peter out, and we will back to being uh, maintaining ourselves as a, as a developing nation and not a developed nation. Uh, our education system is going to consistently be terrible, and we're just going to end up down at the bottom of the barrel. And he's a man who loves his country. He's a passionate Peruvian, and he wanted to infuse for his audience, not only the same passion he felt, but, uh, gosh, for lack of a better term, the same can-do attitude. Like, look, we can do this, and it's, uh, the onus is on us. It's on us to do this. So we sat down with Carlos. Uh, he came in for this, and our team met with him. And what we, you know, part of the Duarte method is we just ask a ton of questions. And uh, Carlos is a guy who is, uh, he's a library of stories, He's a library of insights, and he can talk uh, the chicken off a bone about these things, and it's, so it's great to listen to him. Part of the, uh, the challenge with Carlos is getting, and maybe any people on the line can understand some of these clients, where there's such a wealth of insights and stories that you're just trying to channel this flood. You're just trying to get this um, person to go in a specific direction. So we eventually channeled more and more of Carlos's uh, insights and stories around this idea of what could someone else do to influence Peru. So we do a discovery meeting. We had a long discovery meeting with him about that. And then we went away and started concepting some things, gave him some ideas for, uh, this is an angle you could take with this speech. It, it may feel like this. And part and parcel with that is the design team going, gosh, and we've got some ideas for how your slides could look. And so we, we went back and forth a few times. Again, Carlos is amenable. He's, he's, he's very agreeable. I, don't, I wouldn't say he's easy to please, but when he likes something, he's all in. And so when we stumbled on an angle for him, which was someday is today, and we also stumbled on this angle of well, what if he had a big giant, one of these big giant old leather books up front. And I would say Carlos is not necessarily a prop guy, but we convinced him, hey, what if you had a big giant leather book up there and you described it as the history of Peru and how the first, you know, we'll say third of it, he goes, he, he, he motions to that. He opens the book and says, this is our history. This is the good in our history. This is the bad in our history. And then here's where we are today, and there's a big blank page, and this is today. We, we, we all get to, together, we get to influence things so that we write the future history of Peru. And we can't wait. You know, we're on this page. We have to do this now. So when Carlos signed off on that idea, we really got to, go for the races and, and write out the speech. Again, at the same time, the design team was coming up with some really beautiful design slides. It's a shame that the Cicero Awards don't include the, the slides if they're used in one of these speeches. But um, Ryan and his team did a fantastic job. And Carlos was pleased. And when he went and delivered it, I, I, was, I was 
unable to go, unfortunately, but the rest of our team went down when he delivered it, and they said there was a, a palpable sense in the room that it connected with the audience and that people have uh, taken steps forward in helping write that, you know, that next page, those next two pages on Peruvian history. So, so that's interesting because when I read the speech, which is in, as I said, the, the PDF file of all the Cicero winners from 2017, it says this book represents 50 years of Peruvian history, or Peru's history at the beginning. I didn't realize, so that was a prop. It wasn't, he didn't write a book. It was just a, like a weathered, like you'd see in a movie. It was like the book of secrets or spells or something. Yeah. That's right. Aha, uh-huh, okay. And I also didn't realize, I think this is something J- J- um, David Murray might want to do, is, I, I mean, because writing speeches in Silicon Valley, I think it's fair to say the default is to have some kind of visuals, whether it's Steve Jobs introducing the iPhone and having the visuals there, which is kind of one of the gold standards for, for graphics through to the, you know, the standard PowerPoint. And, of course, Duarte's origins were in designing that. It, it, I think it is important. I didn't realize that there were visuals with this. Um, not that they should maybe include those visuals, but it would be nice to note that. So and, and one question I've got about it is when you read this speech, it's obviously written to be spoken, which sounds, you know, the, sort of the bleeding obvious. But I'm, I'm conscious of, in my own history, as a speechwriter in corporate America, if it gets passed around to the VPs, they all start, you know, using their English 101 and saying, oh, this doesn't read right. And, you know, what are these incomplete sentences? And why have you said this same statistic twice? But you've used many of the common tools of repetition and, and short sentences. Is that something you can speak to? Um, is that just second nature to the Duarte method? Uh you know, I, someone once handed me, in the last year, they handed me a book, and it was a book of rhetorical devices, and it has all these insanely long, complicated words, and I'm sure, I, I wouldn't be surprised if half the people on the line are like, yeah, I know what all those words mean. I, I get all that. Okay, great. I, I don't. <laughs> and I tried to start to memorize them, or I was, I'm never going to memorize these. But I started to recognize, oh, I think, I think somehow I naturally do that one right there, like ending a sentence with a keyword and beginning the next sentence with that same keyword. Or, you know, just these, these little, for lack of a better term, tricks that somehow have seeped into my subconscious through the many speeches I've listened to, uh, you know, any amount of orators. So I think I may naturally apply some of those when I'm writing with – with Carlos, he was going to read this word for word. And but by the way, one thing I didn't mention is that he delivered this in Spanish. And I don't know much Spanish beyond gracias and gato. And so it had to get translated over, and there were some tweaks that had to be made. But by by writing it out like this, so that so that Carlos, he is a also a, a consummate studier. He he, nobody I've worked with would read and read and reread and reread and reread uh, text like he did. He wanted to get it under his fingers. Um, as, as, so, we, so I wrote it out word for word for him. Now, uh, most of our clients, when we write things out, I think that's where we split the difference between speech and presentation. Uh, maybe this is splitting hairs, but with a speech, I always think this is something someone is going to more than likely deliver word for word, whereas a presentation it's, hey, we're going to give you some bullet points. We're going to give you some main things to say. We really need you to say these five words right here. But, that, but you know, every single word probably not going to be said. It's more the sentiment. 
And then when you when you write something like that, again, I assume people on the line know this feeling, you release it into the wild and you have no clue what's going to be said. Uh, they may say those words. They may go, they may wander. Your, you know, your brilliant point three may turn into a brilliant point three with a bunch of other things thrown in and then they forgot that one keyword. And you're like, ah, oh, that was important. That was the only way that was going to zing. Uh, the nice thing with Carlos is that it was an actual speech and we knew that he was going to read it word for word. So you mentioned it was translated. I mean, just a minor thing. Who did the translation? Was that done down in Peru by somebody, or did you guys have Yes. It was someone on his team. And so uh, where that where it required a little effort on our end was uh, just making sure that the sentiments crossed over. And then the design team, you know, they had a, a slide. We don't just throw words nilly, willy-nilly on a slide. You know, if there was a big word there, and it, and it and it looked great, you know. It was it was woven within, uh, let's say, a, you know, an urban landscape. The words were peeking out from behind the the skyscrapers or something. Well, if that word, when we had to change it into Spanish, was had to be translated as two words, well, that that required some work on the design team to, to uh -huh. separate that out and change. And that. I'm looking at the speech now, and it makes more sense when he quotes Jim Collins. He says in his book, "Good to Great." He calls in English a BHAG. A BHAG stands for. So presumably he read big, hairy, audacious goal. That wasn't translated into what the Spanish words for that would be, right? That's right. Yes. Okay. Okay. That that's that's great. That's great. Well, I mean, we're touching on. I don't because I know we've got a lot more to cover. But when you've had client like Carlos, have you had other clients from other who deliver your talks so, or Duarte's creation in other cultures in Asia or in Europe or more in Latin America? Is that something you're, you're uh, sort of familiar with? That is not something I'm familiar with. I know other people on our team have worked with people who have done a little more international type stuff. Uh, I, I would say Duarte is an international organization. We travel quite a, quite a bit around uh, communicating, whether it's or academy classes or doing actual agency work, but when it comes to cultural translation, uh, I, I, I think we have some we have some experience with that, but I wouldn't say we're flush with it. Well, I, I guess what I'm because I've written a couple of blog postings on this is there's a lot there's not a lot but there's enough literature out there on the the uh, quagmire of say American executives talking about we're in fourth down at the 10-yard line and going right. to London and talking about that. Now, as a British person who's lived in the States for 40 years, I finally figured out enough about American football to know that means, you know, whatever. Just like in England, you would say, we're batting on a sticky wicket, and <laughs> Americans would look at you like you're crazy. That means it's a tough, tough going, because wickets so are just sticky when it's raining and playing cricket. <laughs> but I presume, is there anything you can say about that? Because obviously I'm imagining you didn't fall into that trap or else Carlos would have picked it up or his guys would have picked it up, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, for sure. I would just say uh, be aware, uh, you know, be very aware. It's funny you mentioned this because lo, this very day, I was watching a video of a current client who had given a speech we hadn't written uh, earlier in the year. I was doing some assessment on how what what his delivery is like. And he was speaking to a group in London and he said, oh, gosh, what did he say? He made some sort of – oh, he said quarterback. And he paused yeah. and goes, uh, uh, you know, I probably should have studied up on your football before I came, and, and then I would have known what to say there. And I thought, uh -huh. oh, that, that's kind of – it's kind of cute and kind of disarming that he said that. 
But now it's making me think, yeah, just do the little extra work before you go and understand, you know, what's the correspondence for, you know, British soccer, uh, what's a quarterback in, in football in Britain? And how yeah, do you well, at least he called it. At least he called it football and not soccer that's right. because exactly. British people like to point out that's the game you do actually play with your feet, not with your hands. And, um, of course. <laughs> you all have it right. Sorry, this is, uh, I can wax length, at length on this. But uh, I, I, I'm very – so I'd like to get – you've mentioned a couple of times, you know, it's a team uh, – you're working as part of a team at Duarte. But I, I'm, I do know that, you know, you have to call them just three very beautifully produced, very influential books – uh, written by Nancy and then Nancy and Patty is Slideology, which was well, it must be a while ago now, that sort of set one of the gold standards for PowerPoint design, and then uh, resonate and illuminate. Would you say if somebody absorbed all of that, uh, not that we're trying to put Duarte out of business, but could an independent <clears throat> freelance speechwriter on the call or somebody working for another organization, what would you say would be uh, you know, the value in those books, if you could just maybe briefly address each one, starting yeah, well, with biology. I'll just say this about Nancy and her husband, Mark, uh, who started and run the company. It, it, they're, they're, they're nothing if not generous. Uh, they are the kind of people who love giving things away. And so I, I never feel like Nancy is territorial over what's in residence. She wants the – she would love – if everyone got to be better communicators, and Resonate is a great way to do that. It's funny. I, I read Resonate right before I started at Duarte, and, okay, got it, great. It was a wonderful book, great. And then it you know, kind of sits on your shelf, and I picked it up about three months ago. I don't know why. It was sitting there. I thought, well, I'm going to read through this again. And I know this sounds silly coming from someone who works there, but I was stunned. I'm like, this is a great book. I, I think I can say objectively, this is a great book. So anybody out there – Please read Resonate. I, I think it's still floating around online, but there is a uh, there's an e version, an online version that where you can click on things. So when she references a Martin Luther King speech or she references a Steve Jobs iPhone launch, you can watch the video right there in the in the moment. It's it's great stuff. So I couldn't more highly recommend uh, Resonate. Slideology is a little more about uh, slide design, and then Illuminate is a whole other thing together. Illuminate Nancy wrote with uh, Patty Sanchez, and it's it's one of those. Uh, it's a good gut check book. It's just great, and it and it has to do with not the the molecular molecular level of communicating as much as the macro level. Uh, how can your organization help inspire uh, internal change and external change through storytelling, through all of these different methods of communicating and moving uh, the people in your organization, and again, uh, without your organization. And so, uh, illuminate the great one. When I think of Resonate in particular, and I think of our, like what we would call our Duarte method, the, the big things that jump out at me that I would tell anybody uh, on the line, and, and so I will, is uh, audience is king. And I, and I think we all kind of go, yeah, of course, audience is king, but um, you know, our organization doesn't take a step without making sure the client – fully understands who their audience is. And so when we sit down with a client, we do the howdy-do's and how are things going, what do you want, uh, you know, tell us about what you're doing, and they start to take us off in a direction. And we usually have to cut them off because they've already got an idea of where this speech, where this presentation is heading. And we try to cut them off and go, hey, we're gonna, we'll get to that. But first, we want to analyze your audience. So we'll take them through some audience exercise because unless you know 
who your audience is, how could you possibly know what you're going to say to them? There's a, I think this is quoted in Resonate. I can't remember who said it, but something like uh, writing a speech without knowing who your audience is is like writing a love letter addressed to whom it may concern. You have to know who you're talking to. And so, boy, audience analysis is huge, understanding that the audience is the hero, that the speaker, the organization who's behind the speaker is not the hero. They're the sage. They're the mentor who's meant to help that audience hero get to where they want to go. Um, and then a part of that audience uh, analysis they, is move from, move to. I, I, I love move from, move to. If I don't have that, I don't know what I'm doing with a client. And what that is is I, after we've analyzed the audience, we try to identify three, four, five statements that they would say before they heard the speech or presentation, and then three or four contrasting statements we would hope they would say after the presentation. So uh, going back to Carlos's speech, someone might walk in going, what can I do? I'm just a businessman in Peru. We would hope they would walk out saying, I can do something even if it's small to affect the trajectory of Peru. Someone might walk in saying, uh, the history of Peru is predetermined. And then they walk out saying, no, it's not predetermined. It's determined by people like me. You know, we would list those things out. Then we know once we finish the creation process, the writing process, if we have, if we have in theory, moved an audience through what we've written, through the slides, even through the delivery, to move that audience from the, the, the froms to the twos, then we, we know we've done something well. It also provides a good scorecard for the speaker afterwards. When they hear people saying something akin to the sentiment in the move twos, well, we know, they, we know they've done a good job. We know the audience has been moved. There's, it's not a speech if nobody's been moved. It's just a, it's just a report. So uh, there's the audience analysis, move from, move to, and the last thing is, is the big idea. And Nancy talks about this uh, quite a bit in Resonate. A big idea, it's, a, it's a, good, a better phrase than thesis statement because it means a little more. When I have a big idea, when we've come to a big idea before we start to actually write out the speech, I, ha I know where I'm headed. And I know what stays and what goes. And so a big idea is, again, this is talked about exhaustively and resonate, but a big idea is the speaker's unique point of view coupled with what's at stake for the audience. Unique point of view coupled with the stakes for the audience. If you don't have that, then, you know, any, as your talk, if your talk is, if you would say the theme of your talk is uh, new technology, our, our new app, well, then anything remotely having to do with that app is fair game for your talk. But if you have something that's like, that's a big idea that is, if you will adopt version two of our app, then you will save money in the long run. Making that up, it's not a great big idea, but it's something. Then when, you know, Joe from product design comes in and goes, hey, uh, you need to put in this feature that you can invite your cousin into the app. Well, then, then the person who's giving the talk or the team who's putting that talk together can go, okay, let's think. Does that support our big idea? No, it doesn't directly support our big idea. Now we have a leg to stand on when we go to that guy and go, hey, man, we can't include that. I'm sorry. I run into a lot of organizations who have that problem. There's no big idea for what they're going to communicate. So then when Tom, Dick, and Harry jumps out of the woodworks and goes, oh, you're talking about this topic, you need to say this, or, oh, we've got to have this, we've got to have this, and they have no choice but to say, uh, I guess so. I guess it rolls up under this. When you have a big idea, 
you have some amount of excuse to say, hey, great point. It doesn't roll up to the main point that we're trying to make. So, you know, that can be in some ancillary materials. That can be in a follow-up. But we're only going to be using the things that support this big idea. Yeah, I mean, what you've described is, and I'm holding a copy of Resonate in my hands, and it's all there. I mean, you've got, you know, every audience will persist in a state of rest and less compelled to change is one of the key pages in the book and, and you know, about the, the fact that resonate, the title, means they have to resonate with the frequency of the audience. But what you describe, it's, it's great. It's like motherhood and apple pie to many speechwriters. Mm-hmm. But where I'm wondering when the rubber meets the road, what kind of resistance or mind shift do you find some clients might have to make in order to follow the, the recipe, so to speak? Do you find that some of them are it's, – it's, too difficult or it's too challenging? Yes, it can be challenging. It's funny, when I hear too difficult, I know that there's times when I'm dealing with a difficult client. It's like, uh, I don't know we can do that. I don't know we can do that. Now, sometimes a client is just plain hard and they're not going to change. That, that may be the case. But I'm, I've been rethinking things lately and going, well, maybe I haven't enticed them well enough to get them to get on board with what we're talking about. So, so, so I think sometimes you have to, as a writer, you have to, if you're frustrated with a client, sometimes you have to own it yourself and go, maybe they're not, they're, not, they're not persuaded because I'm not persuading them correctly. So, yes, we run into clients a lot who they like the idea of being audience-focused, but then when it comes down to it, uh, you know, really the product is king or the process is king or organization is king. And so we have to, we have to bring them back to this and remind them gently sometimes sternly, about the, the fact that the audience is king. And the other is, is, like I said, the kitchen sink talks, that it starts off pure. Oh, this is going to be a nice, pure, simple talk that's all rolling up to this big idea. And then when so-and-so, the VP of la-da-da and the C-blank-O and the C-other-blank-O steps in and they're throwing all this stuff in, we, uh, the speech that we end up with is if we haven't all been really committed to the big idea, come hell or high water, then we end up with a speech that kind of has a big idea with a few other things thrown in. Yeah, right. Well, this is great. And, I mean, like you say, if anybody on the call hasn't, you should probably order Resonate, Illuminate, uh, and most specifically Resonate, but also Illuminate tomorrow and read them. Uh, But I'd like to move on to the other area in your background, which am I correct in saying I know you've had – uh, on your LinkedIn uh, profile, uh, acknowledged your uh, success as a screenwriter. And there's a couple of things about screenwriting. Is One, what would you say benefits uh, from the world of screenwriting that a speechwriter should know about? And then maybe start by just giving us a little background to, do you still create screenplays? Is that something you're kind of doing at weekends and evenings, or, or is that something in your past? Yes, well, let, let me uh, uh, pare back some of the language you use. I, I'm not sure success would be <laughs> the strongest uh, statement for my work as a screenwriter. I would say I'm a produced screenwriter, which is nice to say, oh, some things got on television that I wrote that, uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm happy I had some produ- pr- produced screenplays. Yes, I continue to do it. I, I work on nights and weekends working on a, a script that looks like it could go into production as early as next year. Small, low-budget thing. I'm happy doing that. It's, it's great. Uh, my background, I, again, like I said, I was always fascinated with screenwriting, and, and there's something about screenwriting that is cool 
and interesting to me because there's such a form to it. Uh, you're probably not going to go past 120 pages. You're not probably going to be less than 90. It's got to fit on a page. Got to. You can do this. You can't do this. Novel writing, sometimes speech writing feels like anything goes. You can try anything. I, I like the limitations, uh, the old Orson Welles quote, uh, the absence of limitations is the enemy of art or something like that. So uh, when it comes to speech writing and presentation writing, what I try to bring into that is the idea of, obviously, story. And it, it, what a threadbare term that has become for all of us, I think. You know, you get your client who gets on, you know, I just want the story of this to be really strong. And you poke around and go, well, what do you mean by story? And then what you realize they mean is, I just want this presentation to flow logically. Well, that's not necessarily the story. I mean, it can have a story feel to it, a story form to some degree. But I love stories. When I get to work in screenwriting, it's about stories. Stories move people. You know, well, I'll take that back and say good stories move people. I think it affects them deeply. And so when I sit down to work with a client, as much as we can have them tell stories within the presentation, within the speech, that I know the happier I am because I know it's good for the client because ultimately it's good for the audience. Uh, there's not a – even the most hardened data head type human is wanting some sort of story communicated to them. Uh, Nancy, she and her team have created a new uh, – Duarte – boy, I really sound like I'm selling Duarte. I don't mean to. I, I, I take it for what it's worth, but I'm genuinely a fan – uh, we, we teach a lot of classes, these academy classes, and there's a new one that she and the team have created called Data Story. And I like the name, but I really love the content. Like even in data, there is some sort of story in there. And if you can find the story in the data, you found the meaning. You found the meaning. And, I, you know, we, we work with clients who are like, oh, I've got to present this data and let's see what happens. No, 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 no. Let's think through this data. Let's identify the story that's going on within the data and then let's communicate that because that's going to provide some meaning for whoever your audience is. So I, if I can get a client to tell a story in a speech, I feel great. I know that when they do, you know, you're fire. It's all the science of storytelling. People remember stories better than they remember data. Uh, you are firing off their mirror neurons. You're doing all these things inside their brain. Uh, but more than anything, you're appealing to their emotion. I quote uh, Jonathan Haidt, who was quoted in, Chip and Dan Heath's excellent book, Switch. Jonathan Haidt had written a, a long essay about the elephant and the rider. And he says that, uh, you know, within each of us, there's a, there's a rider, like a R-I-D-E-R, -E like a 150-pound guy riding on top of a three-ton elephant. And that rider seems to think he's in charge. But if there's a disagreement between that rider and the elephant, well, the elephant's always going to win. And he says, uh, inside all of us, is the rider and the elephant. The rider is our logic, and the emotion is our elephant. And so, for instance, at the beginning of the year, if we're like, well, I'm going to get in shape, we set our alarm for 5 a.m. to get up running the next morning. It's the rider who logically sets that alarm at 5 a.m. But in the morning at 5, it's the elephant who, who throws the alarm clock across the room. And if you don't appeal to the rider and the elephant, you can't truly move yourself or move anybody else. And we as speechwriters, and particularly the clients, I think leverage logic really well. If A is B and B is C, then A is C. We're good at that. Sometimes, more often than not, we shy away from the emotion. Well, we don't want to be seen appealing to emotion. That's cheap, whatever. Uh, that's, those are all fair critiques. 
but when there's no elephant involved, we don't really move audiences. So it has to be both. Uh, Haight and the Heath brothers talk about there's really no power with just the writer. It has to be the writer and the elephant. When someone tells a story in conjunction with a lot of logic, that elephant gets moved. Someone feels something from that story, and they're more likely to alter the way they think, the way they feel, and ultimately the way they act. Great, great. Well, is there a, you know, for those of us who didn't go to USC and do an MFA in screenwriting like you did, is there any one or two books you'd recommend if somebody wants to get more familiar with this, like you said, this very specific form of writing? Sure. Uh, I would say Sid Field, is, his, his, his main book on screenwriting is kind of the Bible of structure. But uh, there's also a great book called Save the Cat, clever little title, Blake Snyder. Uh, it, it, it puts a little more meat on Sid Field's structure book. But what I've gotten more and more interested in lately, I just read – I'm still a nerd about all this stuff. Like I keep reading structure books and this kind of thing. I just read a book by uh, – I believe he's an Englishman, John York, called Into the Woods. And the reason I liked his book uh, is because I'm more and more – I'm less and less interested in overall structure, and I'm more and more interested in a great movie, a great TV show, a great novel is really about a character undergoing some sort of – uh, transformation. And I would say it, it, the good ones are about some sort of moral transformation where they recognize a deficit in themselves, they go on a journey, and they become a better person by the end. And not just that, but that I as a reader, I as a viewer, that my life could possibly be affected by that story. So this may sound very cheeseball, but watching King's speech years ago, it moved me because I identified with you know, strangely identified with the King of England. I was a soft-spoken, uh, didn't want to speak in front of other people, couldn't find my voice, and yet I watched this movie, and this guy who had no voice at the beginning, uh, by the end had found his voice, and there was something inspirational to me in that. So I'm interested in any book about storytelling that describes the transformation of the hero from who they are at the beginning to hopefully – you know, some sort of apotheosis where they become the best version of themselves that they could be. Uh, and I couldn't more highly recommend this is a this is a deep cut. But if you if you can, this will be a strange direction for you. If you find the Toy Story three uh, Blu-ray, Michael Arndt, who is the writer on Toy Story three, written Little Miss Sunshine, he was hired to write Toy Story three, and he he couldn't figure out how to start the movie. And so on the Blu-ray, somewhere buried in the Blu-ray, is this fun little animated 10-minute thing where he goes, I'm going to tell you how I discovered the opening of Toy Story 3. And he said, I had to go back through other Pixar movies to see how they started. And it's a brilliant synopsis of how to tell a character story. How that relates to screenwriting, once you watch it, I think it'll make sense because – or how it relates to speechwriting because – you know, it's all about a character. Every story is about a hero who wants something. There are obstacles in the way. They defeat those obstacles in a happy story, and they emerge transformed. And Art talks about how to how to begin that story well. That's that's great, Jeff. Well, I know it's uh, we've got half an hour left, and I do want to open it up as soon as possible to the uh, people who've dialed in. We've got like 13, 12, 13 people on the line. Um, but you've also worked as, as probably you do at Duarte as a delivery coach. Could you just briefly say what that involves and 
Is this something you think generally speechwriters should try and uh, incorporate, especially maybe freelancers, into their services? Sure. I would say that my work, uh, again, I've been at Duarte four years now. I would say my work more and more is around delivery coaching and less uh, around content development. Uh, I just find that I'm getting leverage to do that more and more. And delivery coaching is working with whoever the speaker is. I may have worked on the speech. I may not have worked on the speech, to be honest. It, it usually works better if I haven't worked on the speech, but, but someone else at Duarte has. And you step in and you go, we're going to help you say these great words great. We're going to help you hit this hard. We're going to help you slow down here. We're going to try to, you know, I even get touchy-feely with them and get to talk about why are you the right person to give this presentation. If you don't understand your unique perspective and why you're the right person, you know, you're never going to, you're never going to really sell this. And so we get in there, and it's, I'm like a golf coach, and, you know, we mess with them and change their swing, and they get frustrated. They go, this isn't how I might normally do it. That's okay. We'll get to a, pot, a spot where, where it feels a little more natural. But the idea is that they would take whatever words were written for them, and they would, they would truly sell them. Uh, when it comes to folks on the line, I would say it, it, it's not a bad idea to think through how is this going to be delivered. So I think we've all experienced this where we've written something really good, and we might pitch it to the client over the phone or in person. And the client's like, oh, yeah, okay, that's, that's pretty good. And it may have to do with the content, but it may also have to do with how we delivered it. Like if you're going to pitch the work, you've got to deliver it as well, if not better, than you hope the client will eventually say it. So you've got to be good at delivery. I've worked with writers in the past who were terrible at delivering, and they would pitch something, and I thought, that was really good but there's no way the client's going to bite because that wasn't delivered well. So you've got to be good at delivery yourself to some degree. And when it comes to coaching, uh, it, I would say with anybody on the line, as you're working with your client, go ahead and plant those seeds and say, hey, you know, and when you say this, you really need to hit this word here. Maybe you pause right before that word and pause right after. Or, oh, you know what you should do with your hands here? You should really do this. Just a little bit of that is going to get you uh, even further. It's going to take whatever great words you've written and help the client sell those to their audience. Well, that's great. Well, at this point, um, uh, I'd love to hear from uh, any of the audience. We've got uh, just uh, under half an hour. Um, just star six to unmute yourself. We've actually got a couple of people calling in from uh, outside the U.S., I'm looking at the phone numbers. I'm guessing one is from the Netherlands by the 599 area code or, or foreign audience code. But um, please, uh, this is your chance now to, to put your burning questions and comments to Jeff. Go ahead. I have a question. Please, go ahead. Uh, so, Mr. Davenport, um, I'm a big disciple of Nancy Duarte. And I'm really glad to hear you talk about your experiences. Um, I work for the federal government, and I can't think of an organization that I've been with that presents its messages so poorly to each other and to outside audiences. Um, we tend to not put a lot of thought, as you say, into the audience. Um, it just seems like we just generate numbers and put it on the board and then we t t turn our back to the audience, and then we just kind of analyze it as we're going. So um, I am trying to um, 
uh, have a spot um, on our leadership training to kind of give them a taste of what you do, um, you know, the importance of the message, uh, important about data. You don't have to show all 100 rows and 25 columns. Just show what is good and what is bad and, and <laughs> tell us a story how we can get to good. And why is it? Why does it matter if we're good or not? And I was just wondering if you could offer any advice um, as I try to get other people to follow Nancy's you know, messages or, or her way of uh, presenting. Yeah. What was your name? Uh, Jim. First name. Jim. Uh, Jim. Nice to meet you. Uh, let me tell you, I appreciate your struggle. I, we, we work with a lot of people who 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 feel like you know the scales have fallen from their eyes and gosh, there's a better way, and they get this wide-eyed optimism, and then they realize, oh, I am surrounded by people who are just not going to do that, or at least not go gently into that good night. So I, I appreciate your struggle. It's not easy. There is a culture change that you're talking about, and we often will talk with uh, individuals or groups at larger organizations and say, I- I'm sorry to tell you this, but this is going to require a lot of courage on your part. But that's the only way that you're going to help the culture change. And so, Jim, I would say as much as you can, start to affect the little world right around you. So I'll tell you more of how I've seen this done successfully. You know, we work with a lot of big, giant, fancy-dancy companies who a lot of them are stuck in their ways. They're just not, they just don't seem like they're changing. And so we get somebody to go through our academy classes or they read a Nancy book or something like that and they come out guns a-blazing and they get, they get, they're like, they're, they're on the front line and they jump out of the foxhole and they just get mowed down. Oh man, well this didn't work and I want to give up. But then they, they, they come back to life and they go, okay, now how, how can we do this with just, just the people right around us? And so just the little small group right around them, they start to present differently than everybody else. And at first there's a little, well, who do those guys think? Now they're doing that different. Well, whatever. But then someone notices. And they go, you know how they did that? I think we should at least try one of our talks like that. And they may try it. It may work. It may fail. But it's enough people going – it's that small core of people who have committed to – at least a few of us are going to change. So my encouragement, I go back to Chip and Dan Heath in their book, Switch, uh, shrink the change. Don't think I am out to change the U.S. government. God bless you, but that's probably not going to happen. I, but instead think I'm out to change the way two people present. If I can change the way two people present, maybe that yeast will leaven the whole, the whole dough. I, I really appreciate that, and uh, and please ask Nancy to uh, uh, write something about using data. Uh, I'd love to buy that book too. Well, and, well, let me. I'll say again, we have this class coming out, Data Story. I assume at some point there's going to be a a book that goes along with it. I, I know I sound like an idiot saying this, but holy cow, it's great. I, like I'm not a data person, and I I went through this course and just thought this is fantastic. So. Please, by all means, check out Data Story. I assume it's somewhere on the Duarte website. Okay. Thank you again. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Thanks. So, uh, n- next up, uh, anybody else like to jump in with a comment or question? Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Who's this? 
My name is Rebecca. Actually, I'm a college professor. I've been teaching public speaking and communication for, whew, well, pushing for three decades. And I love, 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 adore Nancy Duarte's work. Absolutely a game changer in how I teach. So most I want to say is I appreciate everything you were saying. It's like right there with me. I want to tell Jen just same thing. Just try to make these inroads. It, you know, I teach 90 students a quarter, and I'm, I'm hoping I get – one percent to start to change the way they think about how a presentation um, is different from a speech. Mm. Yeah, you're you're doing good work there, Rebecca. I, you know, you get them young, and maybe you can before they get they get so indoctrinated with how organizations communicate. Uh, you know, please, as I told Jim, dare these people as they go out into the workforce to communicate differently than the culture that they they may run into. Um, you know, that's. It's the only way everything's going to change. It is scary and hard for them. They go through K through 12 of thinking that that I'm going to memorize. And I tell them what Nancy says is uh, don't make yourself – or they'll put everything on a PowerPoint. You don't put people through a presentation you wouldn't want to sit through and don't make yourself strangely irrelevant. I mean, she has so many great <laughs> phrases that I love to use. But they, they have to move away from informative speaking and realize that people can go find this information. You have to intrigue your audience to want to know more. So you know, I've tried to come up with my own little mantras and little sayings to help drive this uh, idea. I know, make it safe for them to take on these new ideas. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, you know, I would say, I tell any student, any public speaking student, I think what got what got indoctrinated me in public speaking classes was, I think you alluded to this, but this informative mentality. And, uh, boy, I just don't – we teach this in our classes, but I, I don't think a, a speech or presentation should be given if it's not intended to persuade in some way. If, oh, yeah. if you can't figure out your your persuasion angle, uh, write it in an email. I've got a colleague who always says that. Write it in an email. That's not a speech. That's not a presentation. But if you've got something that you want to persuade someone, change the way they think, feel, or act, then you have something there. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, and, Ian, thank you for having me. I was so excited to find it, and you just reinforced and encouraged me to keep going forward. Yeah. Thanks, Rebecca. Yes, yeah. keep going. Keep going. Okay, We've got uh, still got a quarter of an hour, so plenty of time. Uh, somebody else like to jump in and uh, have a chat Hi. with Jeff? Hello. Yeah, go ahead. Hi, my name is Felicia. I'm so excited to um, be on this call with you guys. So, Jeff, here's my question. I am actually on an action learning team, and we are working on a very large project for a, a large-scale mission. Uh, ministry, and we are tasked with presenting on a touchy topic of basically trying to get more minorities into leadership positions. So, of course, we've done all this research and we've done all this data, but as a African-American female that's going to probably be presenting to mostly a um, majority um, cultural audience, what tips have you found to seen or suggestions you would potentially have for presenting to them this change of getting on board with having more minority leaders um, without making them feel uncomfortable or alienated so many times that can happen with diversity conversations? Hmm. That's it's a great question, Felicia. Uh, it really is. I don't just say that by rote. It, and it sounds like, well, as Ian would say, it's a sticky wicket. 
So mm-hmm. I would say that uh, more carrot than stick. You know, when you're goading the horse, there's a, sometimes the stick is necessary. And I would say in the discussions that you're having, uh, sometimes that stick is necessary. Look, if we don't do this, these are the problems, X, Y, and Z. But if if you really, you know, the old cliche, if you want to attract flies, which I don't know why anyone would, you can get more with honey than vinegar. So, uh, you know, what are the opportunities for them? What's, what's the good things that can come out of it? I know, I mean, uh, forgive me, I'm a white male. And mm-hmm. when when I hear uh, kind of the topic that you're discussing, sometimes sticks move me and I go, okay, th- there's – there are bad things coming if we don't address these issues. But often when someone is painting it in a, we have an opportunity here, and there is an opportunity for something great, and you, you paint a beautiful picture of what that means holistically, organizationally, but also personally to the people in the audience. You know, the more you can get it specific to how person, you know, five on row three how their life, their their position, whatever it is, would get better if there was more diversity. Uh, you go after that, and you entice them towards that. Does that make sense at all? Yes. Yes. I'm writing. I, I feel like I'm I'm punching a bit over my weight when it comes to uh, your topic, because um, I, I know that I have not given a speech like that. But my encouragement would be what, well, Nancy says, describes the new bliss, and, you know, well, she actually de- describes it in, in terms of Martin Luther King's uh, I Have a Dream speech that Martin Luther King toggles back and forth between what, what is and what could be, what is and what could be, and he ends on this new bliss. But there is something greater out there for all of us. And I you know, see a day when all God's children, uh, you know, the end of that speech, your speech needs to paint a great new bliss. But it's not a cultural new bliss. It's not strictly a cultural new bliss, but it's how each person's life in that room would actually benefit from, you know, greater diversity. So it may require some homework there and to sit down and go, gosh, how would their life get better if, if that was, you know, a part of their organization or their life? Perfect. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to give me some feedback. Thank you. Yeah. Best to you, Felicia. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Felicia. Um, Come on, everybody else. We've got lots of time still. So these are great conversations. Thanks again, Jeff, for sticking around. Um, more questions or comments from anybody, please. Jeff, I have a question. Hi. What's your name? Hi. This is Mary Ann in San Francisco. I'm a speech writer and also a presentations coach. And my question has to do with working with creative partners. Who leads, the writer or the designer? Sometimes that can be a tug of war. What's your experience? Yeah. Whew. Well, you're ripping, you're ripping from today's headlines uh, in my workspace. Uh, I am happy to report, again, this isn't made up, but I'm happy to report that Duarte, we do a pretty good job of working hand in glove, that I, I feel like our content people, you know, on their best days, we don't think we're king. And on design's best days, they don't think they're king. That we come at things recognizing, boy, we have a lot to gain from each other. And so when, uh, going back to Carlos's speech, you know, I'm coming up with little, little ideas, little takes, whatever. And then working with the design person, if, if I'm closed off, like, look, slide jockey, just make something based off what I say, 
I'm really cutting myself. I'm, I'm, I'm cutting myself at the knees because I've got this visual person who's sitting next to me who comes up with all sorts of fantastic ideas. Now they may be, they may not apply to this, but I'll guarantee at some point they're going to say something that tricks, triggers something in me, and I go, ooh. You know what we could actually do is we could do this, and then together we're working towards something better. I think there has to be that healthy coexistence there, and that coexistence has to be based off mutual respect. If there's no mutual respect, you're just kind of you're messing around. Everybody's getting territorial. Uh, but if everyone has a common interest, then you can at least work toward it. Now, that doesn't mean there's not some sort of debate. But Yeah, Jeff, I'd, I'd love it if you could take the gloves off here and think about uh, situations when you might not all be from Duarte. Duarte, like I often work with agencies or different people. We're not of the same team, the same company. So that makes right. it tougher. So who leads, yeah, the writer or the designer? Well, anybody. Anyway. Yeah, I would, I would say writer, uh, only because, gosh, I'm trying to say this as objectively as possible, but I would say the writer with a tremendous respect for the designer. So the writer is the one who's ultimate. I would say the designer is not necessarily coming up with what the big idea is. The designer is not coming up with this is where we want to move the audience by the end. I find that the content person really has to be the one who lays all that out. The design is there not just to complement or supplement, but to maybe put a better way, it can't happen unless the designer's doing their job. And so, yes, I think – so they always say about screenwriters, now, screenwriters are valuable because until they do their job, no one else has a job. Well, that, that was a good, nice, uh, you know, make you feel better as a screenwriter kind of thing, but it was really only half the picture because that screenwriter really has nothing except for some pages in a computer until all the other people bring that to life. And so I would say the content person has to do their work first, they get to, to some degree, have the responsibility of making sure that the main ideas are communicated throughout, but they have to look at the designer as an invaluable partner who supports those ideas. If there's disagreement, uh, yeah, the content person is probably going to win out in, and as, in as much as it relates to, ooh, that design does back up this idea or this design doesn't back up that idea. I'll, I'll often be in a meeting with a designer, even internally at Duarte, and they'll go, we're going to go with this blue and this mountain landscape. And my brain is going, I don't like those. Well, who am I? Like, I'm not a designer. That's a, my opinion is worthless there. I better go, look, when it comes to that, that's not really going to, in my opinion, that, that decision isn't necessarily going to either advance or detract from the main message. That's the decision you've made. Great. Let's go with it. Uh, so I want to make sure that I'm receiving their opinions as valuable opinions. But ultimately, yeah, it, the content person has to be the arbiter of whether or not design is fulfilling the intended purpose of the speech or presentation. And are you saying that you, that is respected by the client? Because I've had it be where the client sometimes will you know, look back and forth and not know who to go with if there's disagreement between the designer okay. and the content people. Oh, the cl I'm sorry. It's, put a little skin on that. Explain. Yeah, that I, I'm saying that um, I find this to be more of a problem that comes up often when we're from different agencies. 
like who's going to lead this, and the designer wouldn't necessarily agree with you just what you just said. They would say, well, we're in charge. We're the creative director. Yeah. And, and often, you know, I would always make the case the writer's in, in charge, but that's not always met with agreement by the team, yeah. by the partners. I would say it, that has to – I mean, you bring up a great point because if that decision hasn't been clearly articulated at the very beginning of the process, yeah, you're going to run into these problems right Yeah, hell's a pop if, if it's not. Especially in front of the client. Cause then right, and then, oh, God, going. you don't want that. No, never. So I, I think the moral of the story is have clear delineation at the beginning. You'd much rather, I mean, wouldn't you rather, uh, wouldn't you rather as a writer understand early on that I'm under the design people than think you're over the design people and find out later on down the line it's a, Nobody knows who. I mean, you, you just rather know up front, even if that means you're taking a back seat. I find, I find that somebody's got to be in charge, and if there's not an authority structure, it's a mess. And, and there's a point, isn't there, Jeff, here? I think you've alluded to it, that in the other world that you've inhabited of where you're the screenwriter, you know, in movies and TV video production, there's, you know, there's 25 people, right? There's, there's the designer, there's the cameraman, there's the, the director, designer, there's the director, and it all comes down to, I've, I've heard, and I don't know where I've heard this, that some movie director or other was making a movie in the, or was it a theater production, and somebody said, oh, yeah, he's just the script writer. We can ignore him because we're going to, you know, ad lib this or take that idea and change it into the other thing. <laughs> I, don't know. I guess right. what I'm asking is, do you find there is an analogy there between the world of, uh, as you're describing with Duarte, and Marianne was talking about a script production for a speech and, uh, and the making of a video or movie? Yes, for sure. And I think in those, in those movie situations, what I always found is as long as I knew my place, I knew where I could push and where I couldn't push. So if we were having, you know, if it was me and, let's say, the director and we were talking with the, the main producer guy, I knew the director, it was laid out, the director's decision was going to win the day. So that limited how much pushback I was going to get. It didn't mean I just sat there silently, but I might go, look, guys, as the writer, let me just tell you, you know, let, my writing partner and I might say, hey, look, guys, we think the right decision for the end of Act 2 is this. And they might go, ah, oh, no, that's terrible. Look, guys, we really think that's this. We would just want to, you know, we want to be on record saying we really think this is the way to go. And they might go, well, okay, we see it now. Or they might go, okay, sorry, whatever. I, my conscience was clear because I had operated in the right authority structure. Now, there may be times, other times where, no, the writer was going to win out. Well, then, I, then I've got to stand up that way too. But as long as I knew who was in charge, I always felt much better. Yeah. That's great. Well, we've got just on five minutes left, so time for a couple more uh, comments, questions. Anybody who's uh, not unmuted themselves yet, please speak out. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Ian. Fantastic talk. Uh, this is Luis. I had a quick question with regards to uh, repetitive meetings. So let's say month-end meetings for employees, uh, business updates. Any recommendations uh, for how to keep things interesting, keep them new, and keep them persuasive? And then second part is also for delivery. Any recommendations, uh, Jeff, that you have to practice, I don't know, acting classes or so to become better uh, would be appreciated. Great. Well, 
so the first question I would say if something's come up lately that's uh, I've started putting more and more thought around when I'm working with clients and it's this uh, what are you saying that's surprising now that doesn't mean you have to consistently surprise every audience at the you know end of the month meeting but boy you better have at least one thing in there that's surprising that doesn't mean surprise our CEO quit or surprise we're closed on Friday it just means something that they might not be expecting you to say or bring in some element of, hey, you guys may not know this, but I'm going to highlight Jim here because Jim's been working this way, and the reason the reason we have this is because Jim did this. You're just trying to find something that people don't go, because the worst thing in the world would be everybody shows up those monthly meetings and goes, we know what they're going to say. Like, how many times have we all said that? A million times. I know what they're going to say on the Monday meeting. It's, it, the numbers change. That's it. Got to find something surprising. As far as training, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll throw this out there. We teach it. I and some other people teach a class at Duarte called Captivate. That's all about public speaking. I love that class. It's a blast. We get people from all types, wallflowers to people who do a lot of public speaking, to get better at what they're doing. Uh, if Captivate is not available to you, uh, if that's an available option, uh, you know, I've, I've actually told a number of people, take an acting class or two. I don't want people too steeped in acting because then it gets a little too showy when they're presenting. But a, a good acting class can actually help you break through some of your, you know, if there's shyness, uh, an, an inability or a current inability to understand uh, how you give and take with the audience, even if it's just you talking. I, I've consistently found that when I'm working with someone on delivery, if they're pretty good, I'll ask them, have you ever, did you ever do like high school theater? And they'll go, yeah, I did a little of that. Well, it shows. You know, you have just enough not to, not to mess it up. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks, please. Okay. Thanks, Jerry. Go ahead, Jerry. Do we have moments? Yes. Uh, hi there. Uh, thank you for this uh, discussion. I have an odd question that your client, the billionaire, made me think of. Uh, we, at a conference that I'm involved in, we actually just had Chris Hughes talk about his pet project, Guaranteed Minimum Income. And there is kind of, after the fact, a difficult conversation of maybe you're not the right person to actually do this because there, there, actually, there, there was some backlash after that. He referenced somebody and showed a little video of, of a woman in Stockton, and a lot of people expressed that they would have rather had her speak than a, than a demi-billionaire talking about this topic. So I thought about that, mm. and I thought I would share it. Yeah, I, well, I'll say Carlos was talking to a room full of himself. Yes. You know? Yes. So, yes, I, 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 I was telling a friend the other day, he was doing some training for an organization it, and he doesn't work for Duarte, but he's doing training for an organization. He's asking me some questions. And one of the things I threw at him was, it's good for any presenter or whoever's working with that presenter to think critically about how they will come across, even mm-hmm. before they take the stage. Like, who are like, – if this is a group of people, when they see you, whether it's your gender, whether it's your race, whether it's what you're wearing, what they know about you – you can't walk in unaware of that. So, and then not only you, do you have to be aware of it, you have to allow that to affect your content. So I would hope that this Chris guy would have said something along the lines of, 
You know what would have been great, guys, you know, midway through? That she was here because she really could have spoken to this in a way that I can't. You know, it just hang a lantern on it. Just call out that, yes, that, that, that's an issue. Or, look, I know how this sounds coming from someone like me, but let me tell you why I actually do think I might have some insights to share here. You have to own who you are. If you don't own that person if you, with its positive and with its negative, then you're, it's arrogance. You know, it's arrogance. You have, mm. to, you have to recognize who you are. I, I find that I have to do this when I do public speaking. People have a – the second I walk on the stage, they think something about me. And I, I, have, to, I have to make sure that I make up for something that might be a detriment uh, and, and leverage whatever positives those might be. Well, well thank you. I, I think he half did it. What I take away from what you just said is he actually should have said, I am using the great privilege that I have being a co-founder of Facebook allows me to move this issue than the people that I'm going to talk about. That's great. Yeah, there's, there's humility in that, right? We, we all want some – we don't want false humility, but we want true humility, which is a, an accurate recognition of who you truly are. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Jerry. Um, well, we are at the top of the hour, and I, I really want to thank Jeff for your, uh, your generosity uh, this morning here on the West Coast, spending this time with us. And definitely, I mean, we couldn't have been more appropriate for the Silicon Valley Speechwriters Roundtable than to have somebody from Duarte on the call with us because, you know, you are kind of ground zero in a way for what goes on here and certainly with the design aspect, which probably doesn't influence, uh, isn't a factor in other areas of speech writing, like geographically Washington, D.C., where people write for politicians. Probably all, most of them are just doing spoken words. So it, it's been fantastic, Jeff. Um, and any last words you can leave us with here, just in terms of summary of, uh, if, if you, for instance, if you had to, recommend to a new college graduate who's thinking of a career in this area? What would be the one or two things you'd, you'd mention to them? Uh, I would say analyze as much as you can. Find the talks that, you, that move you and ask the question, why did that move me? When you listen to a talk that doesn't move you, ask the question, why did that not move me? Start to think critically about it. I would also encourage anybody to do more public speaking, especially if you're writing for other people. It, you know, you got to – we all had PE teachers who we realized never once played a sport. They were terrible PE teachers. So get out there and know what it's like to play. Get out there and do – take a public speaking class. Take public speaking. It doesn't matter what it's about. Do some sort of public speaking, writing for yourself and delivering for yourself so that you can get more in the heads of your client and what their true struggles are. And, uh, yeah, I, again, I'll be a company man and just say uh, all the stuff that Duarte produces is, is gold. There's great stuff in there. Pick up Resonate. Take a look at it and learn a thing or two about focusing on your audience and moving them. Uh, and walk away confident, knowing that, gosh, even a guy like me can, can figure out uh, some of that stuff. Excellent. Well, thank you, Jeff, and thanks, everybody, for uh, calling in this morning, this afternoon, wherever you are. And we'll be back uh, probably not until November with another Silicon Valley Speechwriters Roundtable. Meanwhile, the recordings of this and other calls are available on my professionally speaking blog. So thanks, Jeff, and have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.